Ladies and gentlemen, it is the last What's Good of 2021. And how else to go out than talking about racism, a random topic, culture, and a film I may or may not watch. Classic WG. In the words of Public Enemies, Chuck D, bring the noise. On the Fifth End Podcast Network, I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. So yeah, last last uh, proper episode of the of the year for me. Um, what's good, wise? Uh, but don't worry, guys. Like I said, uh, at the start of November, I will have something in place in place of WG. Um, so there will be things for you. Um, on Thursday, if you feel the need to have something of that na- of uh, of five e- of five uh, VPN nature, um, so I'm going to continue on a five VPN radio. Go hit that link in the full show notes. Just go back to go down to the other shows. Um, Pete, that five VPN radio is exclusive on Spotify for ob- for reasons that'll be obvious as soon as you click on it. Um, yeah, we do some uh, chilling with Charlie's, uh, dropping that. Uh, once a week on Thursdays throughout December in place of what's good. Um, I've got some really good stuff going on there. Uh, I've already uh, sorted out, uh, I've already scheduled up three of them. And uh, yeah, we've got a couple more, got a couple more of those to whack out. And they'll be sorted. And yeah, they'll be just um, they'll be just a little placeholder for something that's not what, the, you know, instead of what's good. And we'll also be having the 5VPN special, of course. Um, so that'll be, you know, uh, me... Uh, ben from DITD, uh, got Tish from uh, Black Women Watch, that's going to be interesting, considering that's her first 5VPN special, and obviously all the gang from, well, <laughs> some of the gang, I don't know if it's all the gang, we haven't, we haven't scheduled it yet, uh, from Inside of Source, so uh, yeah, that's going to be, that's all going to be fun, and yeah man, it's all, it's all good, just heading off for the, you know, end of the year, I mean, just, uh, just preparing for stuff, um, you know I mean, just, uh, just, just doing, just, just prepping things. Um, you know, I've got, I've, I've got some stuff uh, for our December. Um, you know, and for at least, at least one thing going on every week. Um, of, of, you know, pretty much, and you know, just gonna be doing lists and stuff, and listening more, listening to music over the year, and uh, just uh, lamenting the fact that, um, you know, there's so much great stuff out there that I feel like people are missing out on, and. You know, just uh, I can't put it all on my list, guys. Can't put it all on my list. You know what I mean? But you know, I'm gonna I'll give it a damn good try. But anyway, that's me. I hope you all do, hope you all got your plans on for the for the end of the year. Um, you know, I just I'm, I'm, I, I always I always feel weird at this time of year, like because I I I don't like this time of year because it's cold. And you know it's, it's just it's at, it's at the start of it. Like usually January February time, it obviously gets even worse. And I'm just like used to it at that point, so I try not to. But I, I mean, I try not to whinge, but <laughs> I'm I'm probably gonna whinge. Um, so you know, you, you think you're gonna avoid the whinging of weather uh, during December? Trust me, I'll, I'll probably be introing a lot of WG shows uh, <laughs> for January February of going. It's cold. It's cold. I can't take it. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, you know, there's that, and you know, I just, I don't know, I feel, 
I always feel in the middle. I, I feel grateful for, you know, try and be feel grateful for things and, you know, stuff like that and recognize privilege and all that. Um, you know, but then I start reflecting on the year and I'm just like, did I do, am I where I want to be? And the answer is usually no most of the time. Um, so I kind of just feel, you know, self-pity on that front I'm just, or self-loathing, a mix of each. Um, but, you know, and then I, then I start feeling, you know, just, optimistic in places you know what I mean about certain things and then there's that and so yeah it's always I never really know how to particularly feel it, it depends on what day it is you know what I mean of just how I wake up that day to be honest um but anyway and that said enough of that lamenting um and just uh thinking I'm gonna save that for the 5 VPN special and uh but that said we got a full we've got a nice uh, show for you guys to finish off we've got two live for sports and film and tv let's jump right in before we begin Email to IG, just gonna link all that, all that, all that in the full show notes. Please go peep the articles for yourself, give them a read, and support the writers to make this show possible. And with that said, for the final time in 2021, let the beat drop. And let's get into the show. Where Carl Rittenhouse is found not guilty for his acts during an anti-racist rally in Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, Indian PM Narendra Modi uh, repeals controversial farm laws after a year of protests. Austria re-enters lockdown as COVID cases rise in Europe. Uh, five people die and forty injured after a car speeds into a parade in Wisconsin. Everything's happening in Wisconsin, apparently. Um, and uh, lastly, Peng Shui uh, is uh, or Peng Shui is uh, appears in pictures and video after the tennis world proclaimed she was missing. I find that stuff so weird, honestly. Like, I remember, I remember like uh, earlier in the year or something like uh, Jack Ma, like the Chinese billionaire, uh, went missing, and was and people were just like, "Where's Where's Jack Ma?" It's just so weird. And I actually saw a, I, I think I saw a, um, a, th- a thing today as I record about uh, China not allowing. Uh, celeb- Chinese celebrities to like not basically not flex anymore like on on social media it's just weird it's just a whole f- I don't know just, and then like don't 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 butt in this is not a foreign matter I'm just, I'm just like I mean she's a world she's a world star in tennis so you know it's, it's kind of you know but, but whatever I'm not gonna that's not that's not that's not what the show's about uh, today anyway um so all right let's start let's uh, hop into sports and uh, this is all about azim rafiq and just uh general racism in cricket which honestly is very surprising to me like i've been cu- i've been watching this story unfold for the past week or so uh nearly two weeks now and um i just find it really surprising that it's, this is this has been like the first time in from what i can remember that you know cricket has been embroiled in like a race debate or just a race um uh, uh, situation. I don't, I don't know. There's a better phrase for it, but yeah, you know, just tackling racism in cricket in general. Yeah, you know, I, I just, I just don't, I just don't know why it's taken till now for me to for for this thing to blow up. Um, in this fashion, I'm surprised nobody, no other, you know, because you know, you know, if you if you if you've looked at um, English cricket over the years, like national wise, like national English cricket, like yeah, there's there's some. There's some brethren, brethren and sistering over there, you know what I mean? And uh, I'm, I'm surprised. This, I'm not, okay. I don't want to say like I'm surprised they haven't experienced racism yet in the cricket and they haven't, you know, blew the whistle about it, right? I'm not trying to go down that road, but I'm just surprised that 
um, it's taken this long for someone to flag up racism in cricket where, you know, I feel like um, the overriding notion about English cricket or cricket in the UK anyway is just like, it's a gentleman's game, it's a gentleman's game. We're like, when, you know, most people that play cricket are, you know, just working class people, but, you know. Anyway, so I found this circuit article. I did I did have another article, but um, uh, they decided to paywall me, so um, go fuck yourself. And uh, yeah, I just found something different. Um, this is from Eastern Eye. It's by Sundar Katwala, uh, director of British Future. It's called uh, Batting for Change to Tackle Racism in Cricket. And I think this is a good article, actually. I think this is good. Um, <coughs> just um, overall, overall, just, um, you know, if you don't know the story, I'm just going to tell you the story a little bit. And, uh, you know, just general... Thoughts about the whole thing, which is good, and uh, it's, good. it's nice overall. So let's, get, let's jump right in. Azim Rafiq's testimony in Parliament offered powerful, harrowing, and persuasive proof that issues uh, of uh, racism uh, in Yorkshire cricket were sustained, deep-rooted, and reflected an institutional failure of culture, leadership, and governance. Within days, Rafiq was himself apologising as anti-Semitic social media message uh, he had sent as a teenager surfaced, using hurtful tropes sadly similar to those he had suffered himself. Jewish civic leaders uh, struck a constructive tone, accepting the sincerity of Rafiq's apology as a starting point for a future relationship. His comments, quote, in no way diminishes or lessens Rafiq's testimony and the appalling, uh, yeah, appalling racism he has explored, uh, 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 unquote, uh, wrote Jewish Chronicle editor Stephen or Stephen or Stephen Pollard, uh, noting they did illuminate challenges of anti-Semitism within and beyond Muslim communities. Rafiq continues to campaign against racism, um, and he has the opportunity, having entered his studies this year, to become part of the solution to issues experienced by his 19-year-old self. By contrast, Nigel Farage demanded an end to this attempt to destroy English cricket. Why revealing more racism in cricket should cancel efforts to tackle racism in cricket when unexplained? Uh, yeah, unexplained. The difficult challenge will be to shift the conversation about the ch- about change from individuals to institutions. Headlines focus more on who wore blackface at a party a decade ago than the hard yards of how to turn inclusive values into action. There is now a bipartisan consensus at Westminster that Yorkshire Cricket County at uh, Yorkshire County Cricket Club, Yorkshire Cricket County Club, uh, is institutionally racist. It would be strange if it was the sole institution in British society for which that is the case. Quote, many of us watched that, uh, watched that through our fingers. It could have been any of us. An official in another sports governing body told me after watching the English and Wales Cricket Board, the ECB, uh, chief executive struggle under parliamentary scrutiny. Few sports are confident... Uh, as to what might emerge if the national spotlight that shines for now on cricket was turned on them. Uh, an open letter from Chris Grant, the Sport England uh, board member, put a powerful case uh, that most sports are missing out on the full potential of the nation. Uh, beyond athletics and boxing, most Olympic sports have struggled with diversity. There was no progress in increasing the British-Asian presence between London 2012 and the Tokyo Games this summer, with just one British-Asian Team GB member among the 399 who went to Japan. Institutional racism defined by William McPherson during the 1999 Stephen Lawrence inquiry reminds us that the that unfair outcomes do not only arise from malign intentions, uh, but can be the unwitting result of policies and systems that lead to different treatment. Yet it is also difficult to use this term to drive positive cultural change. It wants us to direct. It wants to direct our attention 
uh, to the rather boring word institutional, yet pairs it with a powerful taboo word racism that is often uh, intuitively associated with individual intent. There is a tricky balancing act for a sporting body to simultaneously declare that it both understands itself to be institutionally racist and is also fully committed to making everybody welcome. A cooler term than the R word, such as institutional barriers or discrimination, might better navigate these traps. If the question, are you institutionally racist, suggests a binary state of grace or disgrace, the truth is that every institution faces sustained work to tackle disparities and make the culture more inclusive. That's a good point, actually. That's a good overall point on just the or just the term institutional racism and um, you know how it can be very broad. You know, um, I remember seeing um, I saw a a news a news piece um, yesterday about um, you know just police in general, not just the metropolitan police in London, but just um, you know overall policing in the UK. And uh, someone uh, basically, you know, just was asked if, if you know, police, an ex-policeman was like, is uh, the police institution racist? And he was like, yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, we can have a conversation, we've had that conversation about police, so <laughs> that, that does, that's probably a bad example. But, you know, I think, I think it's a worthy, worthy conversation about the binary nature of the term institution racist. <clears throat> Anyway, continuing on. The ECB is developing a sensible, if gradualist, framework to deepen its equality, diversity and inclusion action plans. There will be more stretching targets for diversity in play and coaching through the laudable claims uh, are often, though the laudable claims are often familiar from previous initiatives that did not quite shift the dial. So, cricket must grasp the cultural challenges from the dressing rooms to the stands of how to use this warship moment. ECB's propo- proposed review of crowd behaviour focuses primarily on vigilance about prejudice uh, and new mechanisms to report it. The broader vision should be for cricket to become a contact sport, a social contact sport, both on and off the pitch. Uh, cricket also needs to mobilise and mobilise the decent majority of members and spectators to become active participants in helping the sport they love make the cha- uh, to make the changes it needs. And that's a great point overall. Um, when it comes to anything, if you're a fan of anything, you should be actively against it. This is where anti-racism comes in. You know, you just sit in there like, as, um, you know, as uh, John Q behind you, uh, you know, shouts racist epithets towards your favourite player and you do nothing about it. Then what are you doing? You're, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're perpetuating it, right? You, you, should, you know that's wrong. So, you know, tell them that's wrong, bruv. Like, can't shut up. Like, you know, don't have to get into fights over it, right? You don't have to throw hands, but just go, just go. You know, turn to him and just go like, bro, shut up. Like, you know, just, just, just keep it simple. You know, what I mean, don't have to get into fight over it, or just um, you know, get some security. Like, you know, this guy, this guy's like shouting racist epithets. Like, uh, you know, just can you get him out, please? You know, what I mean, just, just something simple like that. It's easy. You can be diplomatic about it. You don't have to throw hands. It doesn't have to be like you know. You don't have to die for anti-racism. Anyway. Uh, cricket also needs to, you know, said that uh, the start of the domestic cricket season in April could bring this to life. After all the pain uh, in Yorkshire about the disrepute uh, brought to the country, a positive vision is ne- is needed too. A Yorkshire welcomes campaign could invite members to reach out across class, generational, and ethnic lines to invite friends, neighbours, and colleagues to the ground, rather than leaving it only to the club itself to engage schools and community groups. Every major institution in Britain will need to become more confident in talking about race and acting for inclusion. The reward is to unlock the full potential of our increasingly diverse Britain. Were uh, were that not incentive enough, a dramatic sporting collapse has illuminated 
<coughs> the government the governance risks uh, of failure uh, more clearly than ever before and you know that's a really the whole thing is just a really you know shout to shout to Sundar on that on that you know little piece right there it's a nice little write up because you know, it really makes the point um as an overall point um of uh, of an overall uh, a kind of mini manifesto for you know just you know everyone has a role in this right it's not if you're a fan of cricket um, and I will say this, I'm not a fan of cricket. This is why I'm kind of just like really surprised. I've never heard anything of this nature in cricket, right? But I guess if you, you know, ask, um, you know, uh, anyone right, in, in cricket circles, they probably, they've probably been doing that, right? Um, but it's because, I guess it's because cricket isn't, you know, as uh, high profile as football is in the UK, um, these days anyway. Um, Lord, Lord knows what, what happened in the, you know, Botham years or whatever, like, I mean, um, so <clears throat> well, consider where Botham is in life. Um, I'm not, you know, wouldn't it be so anyway, wouldn't be surprised. Uh, yeah, just want to shut up. Um, but yeah, you know, as an overall just point, um, you know, this is this, this is this is good, right? You're opening the wounds. This is what I keep, this is why I keep talking about as it pertains to you know, not just racism, but any ism, right open the wound, then you have the conversation, and then you, you know, if, if you, if everyone agrees it's a bad thing, right, then why not try and sort it out, you know what I mean, why, why not, you know, fuck the Farage people going like, you're trying to ruin British cricket, like, bruv, go fuck his, shut up, like, just, just go drink a beer somewhere, bruv, like, just go drink a beer, like, cricket ain't changing, like, honestly, right, here's a, here's a, here's a thing, right, when you're watching cricket, right, I don't see what this has to do with cricket changing at all. You know, if you if you have... Because this is a pure, like, um, this is a purely in-house kind of deal, right? They're not... The cricket players ain't shouting... Ain't shouting the N-word during a test match, Right, this is all you know. As, as in in Rafiq's um, testimony, it was all inside. Right, it was all like in the dressing room. You know, um, everyone, uh, every white guy calling him Kevin, and every other you know person, uh, every other non-white Kevin, and then one of them calls their dog Kevin. And you know, it's just it's so it's so easy to connect that shit, right? But that's all inside. That's in, inside the dressing room. You ain't in there. You know, re- re- regular person, regular tenant. Uh, tennis regular cricket fan isn't watching inside the dressing room they're just watching the match right and they're not going to be racist during the match uh, you know what i mean why would they do that That's stupid right they do it inside because they feel confident and they fit and then they fit and obviously you know the added uh layer of they think it's banter right and the amount of times i've come across racial banter quote unquote right uh, you know it's it's so <laughs> it's so misleading it's just like Mate, like, can you not see on my face that I about that? You know what I mean. I have to say it to you, Dwayne, about that. You know what I mean. It's just the, the the total lack of unawareness, right? And that's and again, hailing this up is a good thing, right? Okay, you guys are clearly unaware of what of what racism like uh, and how deep racism can go. You know, if subliminally or not, right? Call ain't not calling him a p word, right? Key p. You know, starts with a P, ends with an I, right? If you if you ain't calling him that, okay, sure. But then you're calling every other non-white dude Kevin. You know, 
you don't you may not think you may think there's levels to it, but racism is racism, my guy. Okay? So anyway, to the point. I think this is a good piece, um, you know, just in talking to, uh, talking about the overall point. And guys, you know, this is their problem, but also when it comes to fan interaction, this is why football has been been in such as uh, in the spotlight so much is because it's on the fans as well, and most of the racism comes from the fans as well as some players, right? But most of it is about the fans and how they react to certain players, right? This isn't a fan thing, as far as I know. This is inside player thing, right? So if they sort it out, right, your cricket ain't gonna change, bruv. Cricket ain't gonna change. Like they're, they're not gonna bowl five miles an hour less because they don't use the word Kevin or the P-I word anymore, right? <laughs> it's not how it's going to work. It's not how it works. So, get your bullshit out of the window about this thing. Really British cricket. Right? Who gives a fuck? Who gives a fuck, bruv? Honestly, bro. Uh, it's, a, it's a joke. But anyway, it's a, it's, a good, it's, a, it's a good time, I think, you know, in all of this debacle... I think it's a good time for cricket to finally look at themselves and, you know, just adjust. Um, whether they're, whether you know, the players, uh, non-white players are confident in the ECB and other governing bodies to, to enact change is a different story. So I'll hop into our first of two uh, live segments, and this is all about uh, monogamy. Now, I'm not, mon- I'm, an- I'm, I'm not married. I'm not, I'm not with anybody, right? I'm completely single, right? Um, so, but I, I don't know, man. I just saw this, and it fascinated me. I, I find the, it's just one of those things that just came across my feed, and I was just like, huh. And, and you know, the title is very simple. It's like, why do humans keep trying brackets and feign the monogamy? Here's what science and history says. I feel like if I didn't hear the see the second bit, I probably wouldn't have read it. But I like the fact that um, this is by Dr. Kate Lister, by the way. Um, this is by the uh, the I or I News. I've got a uh, I newspaper, whatever. You know, I feel I feel like um, having science, scientific in the historical context, really. Um, you know, it just adds to the conversation here, and uh, I'm here for it because you know monogamy is a thing, right? It's it's been a it's been a notable practice. Um, you know, um, I guess uh, majority in in majority of uh, most people's lives. You know, obviously there's some cultures that you know just don't, uh, and that's fine, I guess. Whatever, right? I'm not really for or against monogamy. I'm not, <laughs> I don't really have an opinion, um, but I do find it fascinating in terms of just like how we interact as as you know humans. And it's like if we're not actually supposed to be monogamous, then why do we keep trying it? It's a, it's an interesting question. Just like I don't know, it's like a cultural um, just uh, friction point. So it's like you just keep trying. It's like square peg, circular hole kind of thing. It's like why do we keep trying to put the square peg in anyway? Let's jump right in. According to the dating app Field, F E E L D, apparently, um, there has been a dramatic surge of interest in couples opening up their relationships and exploring non monogamy. Since the last lockdown was lifted, the app has seen close to a 400% increase among women keyword searching for, quote, ethical non monogamy and polyamory, a whopping 500% uh, more than this time last year. 
Uh, given the obvious interest in no- non-monogamy, uh, you have to wonder, when did monogamy become the norm? And are we even supposed to be monogamous? If we are, then humans are uh, part of a very select group of creatures. True monogamy in the animal kingdom is incredibly rare, especially in mammals. The California California mouse and the Malagasy giant... I'm going to say... I'm yeah, going to go off that Malagasy giant uh, jumping rat okay are among uh, just a handful of animals that have ever been identified who uh, uh, who really do mate for life and stay faithful to one another scientists call this kind of monogamy genetic monogamy Uh, there are animals that are almost completely monogamous prairie voles swift foxes golden cheeked gibbons who all try their best not to stray but don't always manage to stay faithful Despite what Friends merchandise have told us over the years, lobsters do not mate for life. In fact, they are quite slutty. They form a monogamous attachment or a pair bond for about a week, shag each other senseless, and then part ways. It's more of a holiday romance than exemplar than an exemplar of eternal love and devotion. This type of monogamy where an attachment is formed and both partners are faithful-ish for the duration is known as social monogamy and is pretty common throughout the animal kingdom. And what of humans? We've all been raised on a diet of Disney movies and love ballads that seem to promote genetic monogamy, not only as the norm, but as aspirational. This might be true for a lucky few, nice bars there, might be true for a lucky few, Uh, but I think we all know that as a species, humans are not strictly monogamous. To be truth be told, we aren't even monogamish. God, Jesus. (laughs) The wordplay is uh, tripping me up here, man. Monogamish. Uh, at best, we are trying to stay. We try and stay to stay faithful to one partner at a time, known as serial monogamy. Uh, but even then, we're not great at it. A 2019 literature review on human mating patterns. Con- what the fuck? A literature review on mating patterns. Okay. Um, concluded that quote. While there are many ethnographic examples of variation across human societies in terms of marriage uh, marriage patterns extramarital affairs, the stability of relationships and the ways in which fathers invest, the pair bond is a ubiquitous uh, feature of human mating relationships, unquote. Which means we are socially monogamous, forming primary partnerships one at a time and really, really trying not to shag other people. (laughs) Basically, we give it a go. So the question then becomes, why do we keep trying to pair bond, quote-unquote, and stay sexually faithful to one person? Where did this model come from? What function does it serve? And why do we keep trying to do it? Monogamy is actually something of a conundrum to anthropologists. Uh, From a purely evolutionary point of view, it doesn't make much sense. I'm sure you've heard as many variations on men are supposed to spread their seed arguments as I have, but what is often overlooked is that women are supposed to do this too. Having as much sex as possible will increase the chances of falling pregnant to uh, falling pregnant enormously, and having sex with multiple partners means sampling a wide range of genetic goodies. Okay, interesting way of wording it. I love it. Uh, love the sentence structure. Uh, it's been suggested. It's even been suggested that the reason human sperm coagulates after ejaculation is to help block rival sperm from gaining entry to the cervix. I'm learning today, guys. I don't know if you guys are learning, but I'm learning here today. It's just... Uh, I, I maybe, I maybe I know this, but just not in the way she's saying it. I don't know. It's, it's, it's the reason sperm... Yeah, I don't, uh, yeah sperm coagulates... Okay, okay, I'll say this. I don't think about it. <laughs> I don't think about it too hard, you know what I mean? It's just like, smash it, like... Whoosh. 
You know what I mean? In and out. Yeah, boom. Nah, pregnant. You know what I mean? There's much to it. But she's really breaking it down. So I'm here for that. Uh, okay. The reason sperm coagulates after ejaculation is to help the block rival sperm from gaining entry to the pseudocervix. Right. Okay. Noted. Simply put, your swimmers are expecting a crowd. Lots of, of non-monogamous animals do this. It's called the, a mating plug. Fuck. A mating plug. Wow. I don't know. It just seems so... I don't know, just just very raw about that. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it just seems very half-baked to term, but mating plug, okay. Interesting imagery in my head right there. And if you want to ruin your afternoon, do look this up online. I will not, thank you very much. This is far, this is <laughs> this is enough for me, thank you very much. But go for it, guys, and uh, let me know what it says. Uh, yet monogamy overrides all, all of this and can actually leave you circling the shallow end of the gene pool, and there is as yet no satisfactory explanation as to why humans do it. But there are a lot of theories. Uh, there is certainly a historical influence to consider. Uh, it can be tempting to think of our earliest ancestors cavorting in sexual abandon with multiple partners in an endemic... Uh, Edenic? Eden, Edenic? It's like Eden, but like Edenic, Edenic, I'm going to say Edenic, uh, paradise, uh, but that is far from certain, uh, and if you make such claims at an anthropology convention, prepare for a fight. Pair bonding with one primary mate is found in almost every culture throughout history, it is often referred to as marriage, I'm surprised it's taking this long for marriage to come up, but marriage and monogamy are not the same thing and never have been. Okay, now I'm learning here because I, I literally thought it was the same thing. Um, throughout the ancient world, men were expected to take a wife but have sexual relationships outside of that with slaves, concubines, harems, mistresses, etc. Okay, I, I recently actually like learned what concubines actually are uh, via reading the entire Wikipedia page of The Last Emperor of China. Um, don't ask me why, I spent two hours doing it, but it was just very, very fascinating, the guy's story is absolutely fascinating, look out for yourself, is stupid, is, is stupidly crazy, the last, the, I think the, there's a film about it, but it doesn't really do, like, enough for me personally, I was just like constantly reading it, I was just like, what the fuck, anyway, but I heard the word concubines a lot during that, but anyway, that's where I learned it, um, this is a system known as polygyny. Not pol- is it polygamy? Is is there a difference between polygamy and polygyny? This is this is N Y. I'm not sure if it's misspelled or whatever. But anyway, polygyny. Uh, women having multiple husbands and male lovers. Polyandry uh, is much much ra- uh, rarer, but not without precedent. Fraternal pol- polyandry. I have to say it in that in that in that tone because just just get it past uh, you know through the mouth polyandry. Uh, it's still practiced among some Tibetans in Nepal, for example. The Catholic Church uh, didn't think too much of polygyny, uh, and St. Augustine tried to abolish it in 300 ACE and in 534 ACE. Uh, in uh, the Justinian Code, criminalized extramarital sex, but this didn't stop people playing away. It just pushed the idea it was a sin, and not everyone agreed. European monarchs were not only expected to take a mistress, but the role of royal mistress was an official title at court. It was an aspirational job. That's that's, that's fascinating. I'd, I'd love to hear it. I'd love to. I'd love a TV show about that. That'd be great. Um, it was an aspirational job. In fact, the pressure to have a mistress was so great that Frederick I of Prussia, uh, who was deeply in love with his wife, appointed Katharina von Wartenberg uh, to the role, but never actually had sex with her. Okay. I mean, if you get paid for that, then you know, pretty easy pay right there. 
do nothing. Uh, monogamy has been held up as the norm in Western culture for thousands of years, and there is some truth to the argument that we keep doing it because we have inherited it. But this doesn't just this doesn't satisfy evolutionary biologists uh, who have kept their own theories about why we keep trying and failing at sexual fidelity. Uh, one of the most accepted theories is that of uh, paternal care and joint child rearing. Uh, human heterosexual mating patterns throughout history have been largely driven by who is left holding the baby. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's, that's, again, completely raw, just jumping right in there, just like going, yeah, left with the baby. Yeah, sure. Uh, Human babies need constant care if they are to survive, which means someone has to look after them. Pair bonding makes this considerably easier because resources can be shared, which, in turn, improves the offspring's chances of survival. Arguably, bonding with more than one would be even better, but one partner, at least, ensures co-parenting can take place. Even couples who have no intention of having a baby uh, are still hardwired to be exclusive. Well, then there's the term, it takes a village, right? Yeah, and just having like uncle, like you know, just non-official uncles. You know what I mean, stuff like that. Anyway, uh, godmothers, godfathers. You know, that's the thing. Some people take that shit seriously. That's an, that's that's something I've learned. Like as 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 I've increasingly, you know, grown in age. Like people take godfathering, godmothering, fucking seriously. Like you know, it's 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 mad. I've never I've never been uh, given that honor, right? But um, you know, I, I don't know if I take it super seriously, you know, I mean, it'd be cool, like, I'd be like, yo, cheers, like, that'd be, that's so cool, like, you know, the fact that, you know, you've made me that, um, but I don't know how, I just, I just find it interesting how people, how much, many people take it seriously, like, they really go for that, anyway, and then there is money, here we go, money, always money, always money in there, for the love of money, money has a habit of changing things, and the rise of capitalism certainly changed how we had sex. As soon as we started passing money and titles down the mail line, making sure your missus doesn't have someone else's bun in there <laughs> became paramount. <laughs> That's crazy. This theory not only plays out in most of Western history, but it helps explain why polygamy uh, is so much more socially acceptable than polyandry. The sultans of the Ottoman Empire, for example, enjoyed a harem of several thousand women who, in turn, had to remain entirely faithful to their lord or risk being put to death. Fucking peak for them, isn't it? Um, if you don't have 15,000 concubines to be getting on with, like, who's smashing 15k women? Like, uh, you know, uh, not everyone's Wilt Chamberlain, okay? Like, let's chill. Let's chill on that. Um, uh, if you don't have 15,000 concubines to get on with, the pair bonding with one person is also a good idea if there aren't enough sexual partners to go around. And it has been posited that population density and availability of mates may, uh, also may, may also have played a part. Uh, how long have we got left of this? Because uh, I'm, I've been, I've been talking over it so many times. I've uh, missed out. I've been blocking into the time. Anyway, let's continue on because I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Fuck the time. It has also been. Suge- it's the final show. Let's just go over at ninety minutes for once. Uh, it has also been suggested that humans are monogamish because of concealed ovulation, which means there isn't any obvious sign when, when it's optimal baby-making time. Meanwhile, when a female baboon's in uh, in the mood, her hindquarters swell up like a life boy <laughs> ring to let everyone know. My ass is big! Like, literally, her ass in place. That's, that's great. Uh, another theory on human monogamy is sexual dimorphism. I'm learning a lot of words today. Um, uh, which basically means a difference in size between males and females. In primates, the bigger the difference, the less likely they are to be monogamous. Male gorillas, for example, are almost twice the size of females. 
uh, and will compete fiercely to maintain exclusive sexual access to his hairy harem. Chimpanzees, on the other hand, our closest uh, genetic relative, are significantly closer in size and tend to be monogamous and polygamous. Uh, there may be some historical evidence to back this up. Scientists believe that once upon a time, dimorphism was more prominent in humans. By once upon a time, I mean roughly four million years ago when... Oh, come on, man. You can't expect me to say that long-ass word. Ostra, Australopithecines? Australopithecines. There you go. Oh, I'm a beast. It, t- it, t- it takes me a second, but when I get it, I get it. Australopithecines. We're getting uh, jiggy. The theory goes that uh, dimorphism cre- decreased as monogamy increased, but this is contested as finding enough remains to prove this beyond doubt is tricky. My personal favourite theory is that of testy size. <laughs> it is a fact in, uh, that in species where females uh, mate with multiple males, the testes tend to be larger in relation to body size. This is an argument explored in Ryan Schacht and Karen Kramer's 2019 paper where they conclude, quote, adjusting for body size, human testes are smaller than would be predicted, uh, and when compared to our closest relatives, are considered to be smaller than those of chimpanzees. Together, this provides evidence of relatively low rates of sex outside of a pair bond, unquote. So there you have it, men just don't have the balls to be properly promiscuous sites. That's like... <laughs> Glorious. Uh, there are other theories ranging from monogamy, reducing the chances of infant, 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 oh, fucking hell, infant, infanticide. In, there's an I like tripping me up in the middle there. Infanticide. There you go. Uh, to there being a genetic component, but no one seems to think it's because we're in love. Uh, and by and large, humans are serial, socially monogamous creatures who like to join forces with a sexy pal to share resources, possibly co-parent a child, and watch out for one another. I've heard people say monogamy isn't natural many times, but that's not quite true. In fact, in most societies, monogamy is the dominant marriage type. But as a species, we are not completely faithful and never have been. Not that any of this will get you off the hook should you stray from the marital bed. You can explain about the tiny testes and sexual dimorphism, but I doubt it will do any good. If you are someone who married the first person you ever had sex with, and you were their first lover too, and if you both stay completely faithful to one another and never even thought about being with another person... Please report to the Royal Anthropological Society, <laughs> along with the California mouse and the Malagasy giant jumping rat immediately. You are a very special monkey indeed. Oh, gosh. That was, that was amazing. Miss Dr. Kate Lister, salute to you, man. Salute to you. That was a fascinating article. I learned a lot. And, uh, yeah, and, and it was a nice, 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 nice little dose of humor as well. Cause, um, you know, you have to be humorous about this shit. Like being, being completely geeky about sex is just really weird to me. Like just have, have some fun with it. You know what I mean? Just, you know, if you're going to talk about it, have some fun with it. You know, it's just, it's just talking about sex in like the driest term possible. is just like, I don't know. It's it's just a, it's just weird. You know what I mean, you have to put some fun in it. Like sex is funny. It's, you know. Bull size, bro. They're talking about testy size as a theory. Like it's it's, it's it's fucking great. I love it. Anatomy, anthropology, fascinating thing. Jesus Christ. But shout out to Dr. Kalis. That, <laughs> that was an outstanding read. I'm very glad I read that from start to finish. So hop into Film and TV, and uh, this is all about the potential last of its kind type film. Um, and uh, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by last a film of the last of its kind? 
We'll get into that in a second. But this is called Why Christopher Nolan's $100 million World War II drama Oppenheimer Could Be the Last of Its Kindness by Rebecca Rubin via Variety. Let's jump right in because this is, this is actually very interesting to me. And, you know, since we've been talking about, you know, Disney all year and, you know, uh, where films and t- where film and TV is going, uh, you know, in, in, in the past years, things like, you know, streaming wars. Remember talking about that at the start of the year? You know, I think I feel like this is a great place to just finish off the year film and TV wise and talking about, you know, where, uh, you know, where films are going overall, because this is a great wrinkle. I think this is a perfect wrinkle, you know, especially when, you know, constantly there's directors of note, you know, shitting on superhero films. It's just like, okay, right. Eh. Anyway, let's get, let's get into this. Christopher Nolan's next movie, Oppenheimer, a $100 million budgeted historical drama about physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer and the creation of the atomic bomb could be considered one of an endangered species. These days, it's rare for traditional studios to pump nine figures into a film that isn't inspired by popular toys, novels, or comic books. Excuse me. Even before COVID-19 upended the movie go. No, excuse me. Uh, a movie-going landscape. Audiences had been gravitating towards superheroes and science fiction spectacles, and not much else. That reality has made it increasingly difficult for Hollywood to justify the economics of greenlighting expensive movies that aren't based on existing IP intellectual property. They are they're a bigger risk, not only in reco- recouping investments for studios, but also in generating profits, spawning sequels, and leveraging consumer product re- riches. Uh, no matter how well people receive Nolan's film, it's unlikely J. Robert Oppenheimer's face will adorn t-shirts or lunchboxes. By backing Oppenheimer, Universal Pictures is making a bold bet that the right director can still get audiences excited to visit cinemas for original content. The film, which isn't due in theatres until 2023, will need to defy the odds to become commercially successful. On top of its $100 million uh, production budget, the studio will need to spend $100 million more to properly promote the film to global audiences. Because Nolan's contract guarantees he received first dollar gross, in a, an increasingly uncommon perk that grants the filmmaker a percentage of ticket sales, it will take $50 million to $60 million more to achieve profitability than it would take another film of similar scope. Consequently, Insiders at Rival Studios estimates Oppenheim will need to generate at least $400 million at the global box office in order to turn a profit. That box office benchmark is one that Nolan's films haven't had trouble clearing in the past decade, with the exception of Tenet, which opened in theaters at a time when COVID-19 vaccines were still months away. away. And despite the circumstances, the Warner Brothers cerebral thriller starring John David Washington and Robert Pattinson managed to collect $363 worldwide. Tenet cost more than $200 making it nearly impossible to turn a profit in those conditions, when it comes to known as other original properties, 2010's Inception, grossing 836 globally, a million obviously, uh, Interstellar 2014 made 701 million uh, globally, and Dunkirk 2017 collected 526 million globally. In other words, Nolan is a filmmaker with an enviable box office track record. Those who closely follow the industry point out that Oppenheimer won't be the kind of gripping mind-benders that audiences have come to expect from Nolan, such as Inception or Memento. Instead, it's a historical drama that's firmly rooted in facts and physics. Unlike Dunkirk, which captures the heroism of British forces during the early days of World War II, Oppenheimer tells a darker story, one that exists in the moral murk of the past and is not only divisive but firmly American. 
Academic interest overseas, where known as te- films, tend to make the bulk of their revenues. None of this means people in the movie theatre business are betting against Nolan. The reason that Universal's chairwoman Donna Langley uh, made it her mission to court Nolan after his relationship with Warner Brothers grew strained is that he's one of the few directors who can take a bold swing and rake in hundreds of millions at the box office. It's especially valuable at a time when Hollywood appears to be scraping the bottom of the barrel for IP that can be spun into cinematic gold. Case in point, there are real movies in the works based on the card game Uno, the crunchy snack Flaming Hot Cheetos, and the invention of Viagra. <laughs> okay, I was aware of the Uno one, um, but the other two, well, it's completely unaware, and... Um, yeah. So you're telling me that you can't give, like, you know, a couple mil to just some, like, you know, young upstart who made a really good short film. You know, can't, can't, okay, fine. No, 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 Damien Chazelle like, um, like a pathway? No? Okay, fine. Because not every project can be derived from Marvel, Star Wars, James Bond, Jurassic World, and Fast and Furious Studios are turning to filmmakers with unique perspectives who can launch a film based on their name alone. Privately, other Hollywood players have voiced their desire to see Oppenheimer succeed because it would encourage studio executives and financiers to take more chances on new ideas. Quote, Nolan is a unique talent with a very loyal fan base. If you were to say someone else was doing a period piece about J. Robert Oppenheimer, I would say it would be difficult to get made, says uh, producer uh, Peter Newman, the head of NYU's Tisch School of the Arts MBA MFA program. Here you know you're going to get something different and original, unquote. There aren't many filmmakers who are given the opportunity to create movies around new and unfamiliar fa- uh, ideas at that budget level, at least not tradi- at traditional studios. In a sign of changing times, Steven Spielberg, once a streaming service skeptic, forged a partnership with his company, company Amblin to produce new feature films yearly for Netflix. When they work, uh, in the case of Quentin Tarantino's Ode to 1960's Showbiz, Once Upon a Time Hollywood, the studio and filmmakers alike can reap the benefits. Sony shelled out roughly $90 million to produce Hollywood, which uh, starred uh, DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Michael Robbie, and grossed $375 million well, uh, at the global box office. When they flop, like Ridley Scott's big-budget piece, The Last Duel, starring, starring Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Adam Driver, or Ron Emmerich's $100 million budge- budgeted war drama Midway, the losses can be ruinous. Filmmakers like Jordan Peele and Judd Apatow have similar ability to churn out hits, but their movies don't cost nearly as much to make. Recent would-be blockbusters or adult-targeted movies with sizable budgets, such as Michael Bay's Six Underground, Aaron Sorkin's Child of the Chicago 7, David Fincher's Mank, and Red Notice, starring uh, Dwayne Rock Johnson, Ryan Reynolds and Gal Gadot, were set up, or s- set up by or sold to Netflix. The streamer, as well as its compares, doesn't report box office grosses and relies on luring subscribers with fresh content. So it's impossible to know what kind of financial impact those movies had. Nolan could have easily sold Oppenheimer to a streaming service, which uh, would have guaranteed him a massive payday without being subjected to the scrutiny of box office reporting, but he's a big supporter of the big screen experience and the struggling uh, film exhibition industry. Since Oppenheimer isn't expected to debut in theaters until uh, summer 2023, plenty could be plenty could change in the movie theatre business by then, for better or worse. There's a chance it can launch an environment that's even more hostile to tempos that aren't of that aren't of the comic book ilk. Or moviegoers could be ready to look beyond the constant drip of Batman, Superman and Spider-Man adventures and watch something that doesn't involve grown men in tights. With an original property uh, marketing exec- with an original property, marketing executives have to familiarise audiences with the property while also enticing them to watch the story in theatres. In the case of Oppenheimer, Universal has to make people aware 
<coughs> that uh, Nolan has a new movie and convince them that they simply must watch the story behind the Manhattan Project on the big screen. Uh, Nolan is assembling A-list ensemble, a- Emily Blunt, Matt Damon and Robert Downey Jr. around Killian Murphy, who is playing Oppenheimer to elevate the movie's profile. Another challenge will be uh, reaching its target demographic of adult crowds. They may be more eager to go to the movies two years from now, but while COVID-19 is still lingering, the age group has been um, most hesitant. Uh, the age group has been the most hesitant to visit local cinemas. Really? Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, okay, I'll get to that in a second. Um, quote, there used to be at least one of uh, one level of uncertainty in how movies perform execution dependent, Numa says. Now it's not only execution dependent, it's pandemic dependent. It takes over a year to make a movie like this and nobody knows what the hell situation will be at the time it comes out, unquote. So, yeah, um, a couple of things, right? So, one thing, and this is a overall point it's just about like uh, you know when I read articles like this is so it's 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 so fascinating reading something from like variety for example where um it's so business oriented in the way they're wording it um and just like the uh, and obviously the um the ramifications it has towards the industry and not to like the consumer or anything because you know we read a lot of things and it's you know more aimed at the consumer but then there's like business you know sector business sector specific places like variety hollywood rapport obviously uh billboard uh, music wise right that you know just lean towards the business itself and the industry and the health of the industry because you know if the you know if the cinema industry flops then variety's going to start a flop you know what i mean it's, it's, they're obviously dependent on that front um or they can just write, you know, multiple opinion articles about just like, uh, you know, just fist pumping about, oh, this is not happening and we're sad about it. Um, another thing about just um, adults going to movies, like, you know, I've, I've, I've started going to movies again with my pops, right? We saw Shang-Chi, uh, we saw The Eternals, right? Um, and that's and that's another thing, like, the, the only thing that is in, uh, and this is... <coughs> I don't want to just see superhero movies, right? I'm not one of these people, right? You know, it's there, it's it's fine. It's you know, it's a reason for me, and my dad, to you know, to 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 to, to chill. Um, so we just do it, right? Yeah, you want to go see this? Fine, yeah, cool. We're gonna go see Spider-Man next month. We're definitely gonna see Matrix next month. You know, I'm hyped for that one. I'm gonna, I'm, I might be reporting back on that one. I might be reporting back. I might be like, I might have gone to it a couple of times. Who knows? Um, so you know. I want to. I want to see original shit. I do. I want to see original shit in the cinema. Like I saw the Hard Day Fall. I went to the BFI to go see it. Right. I went to a freaking film festival to go see the Hard Day Fall. Right. I don't want festivals to be the only th- only place to get to to get your fix of original shit. I really don't want that to be the case. But obviously, all of this is is just a money risk. And you're gonna see some. You know, there's plenty of great TV out there. You know, there's plenty of great theatre out there. But you know, it's only if you're interested in that kind of shit, right? They're not going to show it on. They're not going to show it in every Odeon just because I want it to. You know what I mean? Or just because the filmmaker wants it to. You know, they have to. I don't know. There's an earned stripes element about it, but I don't know, man. It's just um. I feel like there needs to be, I guess, a a a support uh, a support network, right? For um, the industry professionals that you know see this film as something good, and they push it. They just collectively push it to be uh, to be worthy. And obviously, that's what you know festivals are for. Um, you know, it's what you know, especially like something like Sundance or Cannes is uh, for. You know, uh, you know where where you know, films have like a oh 
so people people saw this film in Canada and they applauded it for ten straight minutes. And guys, I always, I always that always pissed me off because like, I'm not applauding something for ten minutes. I'm sorry, you, 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 I'm 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 done after two minutes. Like you're not, you ain't getting me to applaud for ten minutes, guys. It's I'm done. <laughs> it's just not gonna happen, right? Most of the time when I sit and watch a film, I'm just like I'm just stewing in it. Like as soon as the credits come in, I'm just like. <sighs> I like like it, it, I immediately think about whether I liked it or not, and you know just like letting it wash over me. I don't clap. Like <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not like a it's not like a it's not like a, a concert in that way to me. Um, I don't see it like that. But anyway, I'm getting a, I'm getting too far from the point. Um, you know, it is I think I feel like hopefully it's not the last film of this kind. You know, I didn't watch Dunkirk because I'm not really into like that many World War Two stuff. I did watch 1917, however, so you know I'm not. I'm not you know, I'm not exactly too against it, right, I will watch it, you know, in some cases, uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm not really like, oh, I'm a big fan, oh, oh give me more war films, you know, I'm not, I don't really care, like, I watch, like, one war film for every 20 that come out, um, but, you know, I hope it, I hope it does fine, right, and I'm sure it will, I'm, I'm, I'm quietly confident it will, like, um, I feel like, you know, there's enough, uh, Nolan people to, to fuck with it, and, uh, you know, names names matter unfortunately and uh well not unfortunately but you know you know what i mean i don't want it to be the beat like i don't want it always to be oh this person's in it i must watch i never go by that i never go by that i've never I, there's no actor in the world where i'm just like oh this person's in it oh i'm gonna watch like it's, it's never that for me i don't know who i don't know why people do that um but you know i i do i do hope for the sake of the industry i guess um that it does do well and uh yeah man but I might be a hypocrite by saying I might not watch it. So <laughs> I'm interested in documentaries about the atomic bomb, maybe not films. You know what I mean? It's one of those cases where, like, you know, I'd rather have just a factual story itself and not a dramatization of it. But that's just me. You're on your own. You're an individual. Decide for yourself. So finish off this episode and 2021 of what's good with uh, a, uh, an article on culture. Uh, this is our second uh, life segment. Um, so this is by Anne Helen Peterson. Uh, she is a film and media studies prof- professor at Whitman College, Washington, and has also taught and has taught a course entitled Mad Men Media Gender Historiography. Histo- so, like, on the show Mad Men? Oh, yeah, that's kind of... Mad Men, always, as a show, just fascinates me a lot. I haven't seen it since I first watched it. And I missed out, I think, like, the last few seasons because I just lost track. Um, but, yeah, it's a fascinating show. Anyway, um, so this is called Overloaded. Is there simply too much culture? And uh, I feel like this is a good place just to, you know, finish. Like, the whole the whole thing of just talking about culture and, you know, how we consume things. Because, uh, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot. So let's jump right in. There was a moment back in oh, 2012 when I thought I'd be able to keep up with it all. And by it all, I meant all the good TV shows, all the good movies, all the good music. From my tiny studio apartment in Austin, Texas, I would read the Twitter feeds of the critics I loved, then consume what they told me to. I caught obscure documentaries at one of the local theatres. I bit-torrented uh, the shows that fell under the ever-widening banner of quality television. Spotify meant that for the first time, I really could listen to the top 100 albums of the year, as advised by Pitchfork. I saw blockbusters on Friday nights in movie houses packed with teenagers. I listened to Top 40 Radio. I read the latest Pulitzer winners and all four Twilight books. I was feasting, but not yet over full. 
Uh, or to use a different metaphor, I was treading water in what I saw as a glorious and expanding sea of media. Such a contrast to the options of my rural youth, uh, when my choices were severely limited by the options at the video rental store, extended cable, and the one CD a month I could afford on babysitting money. Of course, elements of my access were either illegal, BitTorrent, or pay or paid the artist very little, Spotify. Uh, but I also felt like I felt very much like the twenty-seven-year-old I was, that I had finally achieved uh, a sort of comfortable fluency with the uh, the kind that allowed me to always answer yes when someone inevitably asked, "Have you seen, read, heard this?" Soon, the definition of number and number of television shows that felt essential or quality or part of the larger conversation began to grow. It wasn't enough to have watched The Wire and The Sopranos and to be caught up with the, with Mad Men and Breaking Bad. There was The Americans and The Good Wife, Outlander and The Nick, Game of Thrones and Homeland, Broadchurch and Happy Valley, plus all of the ongoing seasons of shows that previously felt very important, House of Cards, see House of Cards, but increasingly felt like a slog. Maintaining my fluency was getting harder and harder. I was a media studies professor who was able to devote hours of my ostensible working day to the task of consuming media. I was still falling far behind, and so and more so every day. In discussing my struggle to metabolise what felt like a never-ending meal, I'm focusing on television, but television was just part of the larger, overwhelming feast. Around the time television options began to expand, so too did the supply and our access to so many other forms of culture, from YouTube to digital mixtapes. In 2009, for example, 7 million people worldwide were using Spotify with its seemingly infinite musical access. By 2014, that number had ballooned to 60 million. Also in 2009, the teen YouTuber known as Fred. Oh, gosh. Oh, the, the pain. The pain of hearing that dude's fucking squeaky-ass voice. I know it's obviously not his voice, but you know what I mean. Uh, became the first to have his channel hit 1 million subscribers. By 2014, a new YouTube channel was reaching that milestone every day. By 2012, 10 hours of music and audio were being uploaded to uploaded every minute to SoundCloud, leapfrogging traditional production and distribution methods. In 2010, around 1,500 podcasts launched on iTunes every month. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what that, what that is now. Uh, by 2015, it was nearly 6,000. <laughs> Uh, uh, shout out to the podcast. Um, by 2000, yeah, duh, but something about the way television consumption standards expanded made it seem more overwhelming. Maybe it had something to do with how hard it became to have a shared in a conversation about a show, with my friends who all seemed to be embarking down different pathways, or with my students who didn't seem to be watching anything at all, or even online, where the cherished art of the episode recap seemed less and less useful. Part of this phenomenon could be blamed on Netflix, which in 2013 began its now uh, standard practice of releasing the whole of a season at one time. Another factor was the continued slow-motion decline of media monoculture, monoculture first set in mon uh, motion with the spread of cable in the 1980s. Technology made it easier to make more television and, though on through on-demand, for people to watch more of it. Q 389 scripted television shows airing in the US alone in 2014 compared with just 182 in 2002. It was around this time that critics started asking if we'd reach peak TV. From The Guardian 2015, quote, 400 shows at no, and no time to watch them, is there too much TV on television? From New York Times, is there too much TV to choose from? And from NPR, is there too much TV? Is there really too much TV? A survey commissioned by Hub Entertainment Research found that 42% of viewers who watched at least 5 hours a week thought there was too much TV in 2014. 
But that survey also found something fascinating. 81% of viewers reported that the time they did spend watching television, they spent watching shows they really liked. To anyone who grew up sharing a television with their family and choosing from anywhere (laughs) anywhere between 3 to 15 good options, this is a real change. Instead of spending your Thursday night watching a rerun of a sitcom you never really liked in the first place, just to have something on before Friends starts, you're watching something uh, you chose, and at least theoretically, continue to choose. There are limits, however, to the pleasures of choice. When the Hub Entertainment Research asked the question again in 2017, only 73% responded that they were spending their time watching shows they really liked, while the percentage of people who felt that there was too much television went from 42% to 49%. The survey didn't ask responders to dig into their reasoning, but maybe they were feeling something similar to what I felt at that point. Like half the things I was watching, uh, I was watching out of some odd completionist tendency. Completist tendency, I do that sometimes. Um, and the other half, I watched Succession fully, even though I wasn't really rating it, but I felt like I had to continue watching it. But I stopped after the first season, the end of it. Um, and the other half I was watching because it felt as if I should, particularly if I wanted to continue to be part of some imagined online cultural conversation. The result was a mix of resentment and paralysis. I was watch- I would watch two episodes of a show and bail, simply because I didn't want to commit to the entire season. Wading through the streaming, uh, the streaming menus felt akin to babysitting hundreds of small children, all of them clawing at me, desperate for my attention. Whenever I saw a post on the subway for yet another new show that I had somehow never heard of, I wanted to graffiti it. How dare these networks produce so many things in so many forms with so many seasons? How dare they produce so much content? Of course, that sentiment was wholly irrational and entirely wrong. Peak TV meant more TV shows, uh, but also meant more shows directed at people who weren't me, aka people who weren't middle class, straight white ladies. Uh, the history of television is, in some ways, the history of executives figuring out that people other than white people can spend. Black people spend money, for example, and you would believe that gay people spend money too. Um, yeah. Uh, and would you believe that gay people spend money too? That's a question mark. I was got confused there. Anyway. Uh, but the thing about Netflix is that, unlike, say, a network, it wasn't trying to attract the type of viewer that could then sell to an advertiser because there were no advertisers. Instead, Netflix was just trying to have enough content catering enough in- to enough interest that it could convince as many people as possible that they should continue to pay for its service every month. To make itself more valuable to every uh, to ever more people, Netflix began employing their massive data sets gleaned from the watch histories of millions of customers to give flailing consumers a way to stay afloat. When you logged on, instead of feeling overwhelmed, you were supposed to feel comforted by the fact uh, that, the, that the screen showed you what was popular and what other viewers like you were watching and what you had been watching. It was supposed to feel organised yet abundant, contained yet but appealingly infinite. Maybe that's how it felt to you, it's certainly not how it felt to me. At the time, I was burning out hard at my job, working myself into the ground in an attempt to find the sort of stability I hadn't really felt since that student student apartment in Austin. Back then, I would finish my day of writing with a movie or a couple of hours of the latest show I torrented or even music, even live music. It felt like a bookend, like an exhale, like an actual break. By 2017, all that media felt like another item on my endless to-do list, as obligatory and joyless as picking up the dry cleaning. So I did what I've done. Uh, yeah, I've did what I've done when it comes to so many of the causes fueling a wider sense of burnout. I lowered the bar, then I lowered it, lowered it again. I have stopped listening to most podcasts, save the ones I really, really like. When I watch TV, it's a mix of things, mix of things I re- actually enjoy and give me comfort. 
regardless of coolness or quality, Lord of SVU, in brackets, shows that reactivate the anticipation and glory of weekly appointment watch, like Succession. Uh, uh, funny, I was mentioned that, and then she mentions it. Uh, and shows I arrive at a week, a month, or a year late. I detest the Spotify algorithm, but delight in music that comes to me the old-fashioned way by people telling, by people I know telling me about it. I crave the escape of a movie theater, and will come back to it soon. But I've also stopped feeling guilty about a pandemic aversion to movies. That love and hunger will return. Feeling bad about it won't make it happen faster. I feel I feel the same way about that actually. When I when I miss when I miss without watching Tenet, I was like I want to watch Tenet and I want to support you know the film industry in that kind of way and like go to the cinema. But then I was just like I I just don't trust people and I ended up just not going. But I did feel bad about it. But yeah, it's a good point. If someone were to give me that survey today, asking whether or not there's too much television or just even or even just too much media, I'd say no. I'm glad there's so much out there to press other people's buttons to prompt them to watch and rewatch to make them feel seen and celebrated. I hope there's more weird and it's esoteric and experimental stuff that changes our understanding of what art can do. And I hope there are more shows like Ted Lasso that remind us of our steady craving for tenderness. I hope, in other words, that there's more, even if that more isn't always for me. And yeah, I feel like... I mean, if I answered the question, I would tend to agree. Because I I feel like there's a balance there between trying because clearly there's just so much choice <laughs> i've mentioned the matrix before but you know in the words of the matrix and the architect of the matrix the problem is choice and um you know i just the, i you know my my diet right is um if i'm if i'm you know if i if i have like a uh Let's say, let's say uh, I've been, I've, you know, I've been recently, I've had like a six out, a six month contract that I've recently finished. Um, so, you know, I worked like, um, you know, a few hours every day um, on that front, right? So, say I do that, right? I walk with the dog, that's two hours, right? And then, you know, I wake up like midday, right? Because I'm that kind of person, right? And uh, yeah, and then the rest of it is like either music, podcasts, or TV shows, films, right? It's one of those, and maybe reading, maybe reading in between, like, in, on top of, like, a podcast or an audiobook. There's that too, right? So I have so many options. I have so much choice. It's stupid, right? I probably have too much at this point, right? But there comes, a, there, there does come a time where, the, where was, there was a time that came, of really, it's been and gone for me, where, you know, when I was, like, covering the streaming wars and stuff like that, I was just acutely aware that there's just going to be shit I'm just going to miss. Right, and I'm gonna see the awards for you know the Golden Globes or you know the Baftas or even the Oscars, and I'm just like haven't seen that, haven't seen that, haven't seen that, haven't seen that. Right, and it's fine, it's fine, guys. Do it's what it is. You get through the day how you get through the day. Right, most people just watch reruns of The Office or Friends right now, and or Seinfeld if you're that kind of age. You know, it's just it's just it is what it is, man. <laughs> like and. and it is depressing in some way because as a creative person, like, you know, obviously I do the podcasts and stuff like that. Um, if you're listening, honestly, I am very surprised that I get people to listen. Like, I cre- the further I go, the more surprised I get because there's more choice for you guys. There's more choice for me. I'm one of these, but I'm, I'm one of you, right, in that fashion. I've got, how many podcasts have I got on subscription right now? Let me, let me check my pocket cast right quick. Um... 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Those are just 15, 7, 9, 9, 20. So I, I've got like 20, 20 signed podcasts. 20 signed podcasts in, in, in rotation, right? You know, a couple of them are series. A couple of them are just like ones of, 
they're very inconsistent and they come if they come they don't if they don't um i've got I've got two that uh, that I'm way behind on, but I want to get into at some point, but I just never find the time to. Same with audiobooks. The amount of unread, unlistened to audiobooks I have is, is silly right now. I've probably got like 40 titles there. Let me check right quick. Um, you know, just I've already copped, right? I've already used my credits on that front. Um, but I just, I just, I've got 78 titles. Okay, I've got 33 titles I haven't started. So I've got 78 overall and 33 I haven't started. Like 33 titles I haven't started. Um, you know, and that's just and it's just going to keep increasing, right? Um, so you know, there's that. I've I've listened to like hundreds of albums and EPs this year, um, and you know, it's just you 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 consume what you consume. And uh, I feel like for most people, a, what a good thing about all this in some way is the is the illusion of choice. It's a good and bad thing. It's not an illusion. The fact of choice is a good thing and a bad thing, right? And it's just how you look at it. Um, put simply, um, I don't. I, I, it's, it's funny if you want to be someone like me who kind of sees himself as a cultural contrarian. Like you know, I I I don't listen to much. Of the popular shit that hip hop produces, or the popular that I saw the Grammy nominations the other day, and I was just like, I've I've seen I've listened to like two of these albums overall, like it, literally like uh, Lucky Day's album, uh, Dinner Party, uh, you know Arlo Parks, and that's you know King's Disease Two, Nas right, that's it. I haven't listened to Donda, I haven't listened to Certified Leather Boy, I haven't listened to any of that. I haven't listened to any of the popular shit. All them albums of the year, none of them. None of them haven't spun any of them. Not the Billie Eilish, not the John Baptiste, not the Justin Bieber. Fuck, like people still listen to Bieber these days. Like, what? What's he got to say? What's he got? You know what I mean? So, and I and I'm not. I don't bother complaining about it. There's, there's no point in complaining about it. I, you know, it's what it is. If people like it, they people like it. You know. Um, but whenever people, you know, tell me you gotta watch this, you gotta watch this. It's not going to happen. It probably won't happen. It really probably won't happen because the amount of choice I've given myself is probably objectively too much. I need to cut. I probably need to cut down on some things, right? But I just always, if one goes dry, like you know, the podcasts are probably going to go dry this week because you know Americans they're, they're celebrating Thanksgiving. So you know, most of my podcasts will probably go dry because you know a majority of them are American based, right? So. In place of that, I'm going to be listening to some albums. I'll probably go downstairs, watch a film or two. Uh, I might listen, might get on that audiobook tip. I've been listening to that Michael Johnson Defiance um, that I talked about a few month, a couple of months ago. That's fucking amazing audiobook series right there. Um, that's more of an original podcast from Audible, but you know what I mean. It's great. I'm enjoying the hell out of that. So, you know... I just like the I just like to have stuff in the back uh, stuff as a buffer like in case anything goes dry if there's no like good albums out then that's fine I'll just you know go through the litany of podcasts I have if that's not if that's not hitting me I'll dip into an audiobook or I'll watch a film that I've been meaning to watch I haven't been on Netflix in ages I don't remember the last time I was on Netflix well to watch the holiday fall that was probably it I just wanted my mum to see it but that was it that's probably it that was the last time um, and after that no idea so <sighs> Answering the question, is there too much culture? Objectively, there is. But without the litany of stuff we have, there are so many shows out there that are representing people um, that would have, that probably have never been represented before, ever. And, uh, you know, that's just one side of it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's good that people are finding places to 
have their identity seen. And that's what art is supposed to be. And that's why I'm kind of, in overall sense, just, you know, kind of grateful that we have such a a, a wealth of things to consume. Um, but, you know, in because, you know, if we were in, in the in time I just use consuming, you're going to get burnt out and you're going to feel fat listening uh, listening to some stuff or or watching some stuff and you feel like maybe you've wasted your time um you know i get that sometimes so it's a it's a it's a tightrope walk in some ways um but overall i feel like it's probably a good thing and honestly you know apple plus isn't missing me i don't care you know what i mean they don't care about me i don't care about them that's fine same with disney plus same with hbo max even though it's not over here yet prop yet um, well, Sky do, does most of the HBO stuff, so there you go. That's probably that. Um, so yeah, you know, uh, you know, you're not missing stuff. And to be honest, I always think about this, and this is my final point. Um, you know, even in even in like the nineties, right? Let's just say the nineties, right? There's plenty of stuff that you, if you were living through that era, there's probably tons of stuff that you missed. There's tons of music that you missed, right? And you probably would like it. Um, but you just never got to it for whatever reason. And you probably still can get to it if you really want to. You can probably find it. If you if there's an album by an artist that you uh you know you, that you never heard of but is literally right in your wheelhouse. Yeah man, he's there. They're there. But you just never get to it. And that's just and that is what it is. So it's it always hap- it always happens regardless of what uh, era we're in. If you were in the 70s, you probably missed out on a show. If you're in 80s, you probably missed out on an album. It is what it is. Uh, you, you're never going to catch up on everything. And you just have to be. And once you get calm with that fact, once you're calm with that fact that you're not going to be able to consume everything, then you just start to see it in a different way. And I'm slowly getting into that process. I'm very slowly getting into that process. And when I said. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Fifth End Podcast Network. I've been Charlie Taylor and this has been Moscow. Intro music has been too much by Vanilla. You can find this link in the full show notes. Thanks to Chill Records for the ability to use the track. You can also find their link in the full show notes. And thanks to Nappy Hire for the ability to use Charismatic for the interview. You can also find his link in the full show notes. Now, with that said, I hope you all have a good end of the year. I shall try and do the same. But until the next year, take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen.